Flint, Michigan, just an hour's drive from Detroit. I spent a ton of time there as a kid. It's where my grandparents and my mom both went to college, where both my parents worked for most of my childhood. It's a place that helped shape the person I am today. Of course, most of you know Flint for very different reasons. Flint's tap water was laced with dangerous levels of lead. The state knew about it and did nothing. It's been five years since the crisis started. The cameras are gone, the spotlight's dimmed, but the people of Flint, the nearly 100,000 of them who call it home, they still can't trust their water. The same lead piping that leached poison into their children remains in the ground. And the same government who told them it was safe to drink before the crisis became public is saying the same thing today. So I decided to make a visit to check in on folks at the Tuesday Farmer's Market. That's where I met Kyra. How did the water crisis affect you? It affected my child more so than me. With her, um, How old is she? She's seven now. When it first started, she was, I think, four, about three or four, and just the um, condition of her skin, just getting sick all the time, it all starts to take a toll. She started having little spots on her back, and you can just tell that something wasn't right. Since then, the, the, the government's been, uh, been trying to address it. You think, you think they've done enough? No. You know, you just still don't feel safe drinking the water. You, you never know if the pipes are getting fixed. They fix certain pipes on certain streets. They leave your streets tore up. And then it's like they go back to wherever they live. And our streets are messed up. Our pipes are still messed up. This is still a problem. We are still living through this. We are still going through this. You know, don't just forget about us because you don't see us on TV anymore. And you know, we need to continue to stay together and fight for what is right. Kyra's story isn't an anomaly. Most folks I talked to that day shared her distrust of the pipes, of her government's ability to help. And that distrust, it's what'll last well after the last lead pipe is removed. And that, in and of itself, is dangerous. See, Trust is fundamental to just about every topic we've talked about in this series, because trust is the basic ingredient of public health. Without it, there is no science and no government. We trust science, and by extension, scientists and doctors, to faithfully answer questions that are literally the difference between life and death. And government? Well, when Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence, he said, and I quote, "'Governments are instituted among men, and of course that should really read people, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed.'" That means we have to agree to be governed. And why do we do that? Because we trust that our government will act in our best interest. But what happens when government betrays that trust, when they withhold that science in matters in life and death? This is the story of Flint. Today, we're going beyond the headlines, beyond the same story you've been hearing about in Flint. Instead, we want to bring you the deeper story, connecting the dots between a poison and the people who suffer it, between science and socioeconomics, between history and health revealing a web of causes and consequences that extends well beyond Flint city limits. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Abdul Al-Sayed. Stick around. People think of Flint and think of brown water. They think of the water crisis. But really, Flint has this incredible history that we talked about of prosperity, of cars. My name is Mona Hanna-Atisha. I am a pediatrician in Flint, Michigan. I work for Michigan State University and Hurley Children's Hospital, and I founded and direct an initiative called the Pediatric Public Health Initiative, which is a model public health program to mitigate the impact of the Flint water crisis. Dr. Mona, as she's affectionately called, is selling herself short. 
She's a Michigander through and through, and she's been serving Flint kids as a pediatrician since she was a resident. Her parents were scientists who fled Iraq as refugees, and she was the doctor who led the studies that ultimately demonstrated the colossal crisis here in Flint. She's the reason why the massive national spotlight turned to the city in need. But that's the part of the story you've heard. And here's where we take a different path. Because to truly understand the Flint water crisis, focus less on the water and more on Flint and the history of this quintessentially American city. Flint, Michigan, 1930s, the place to be. The early morning sparkles with the greeting of men to men. On their way to factories in Flint and Atlanta. As you drive into Flint, you're greeted by an arch built in the 1800s. In wrought iron, it says, Flint, vehicle city. It's because it was. Flint was one of the world's leading automotive manufacturers, with much of GM's Buick line rolling out of factories in the city. At one point in the 1950s, GM employed 80,000 people in Flint. There was even a car called the Flint. You get it. But Flint wasn't only at the center of one of the most important manufacturing industries in the world. It was also at the center of the movement to protect the very workers who made it all possible. More importantly than kind of cars coming off the assembly lines, Flint was the birthplace of resistance and disobedience. It is the place where in 1936, auto workers stood up for what is right and actually sat down. They, the historic sit-down strikes were in Flint, Michigan in the 1930s, where for 44 days, auto workers literally sat, occupied all the car plants, stopped production, and demanded their fair share of prosperity. Um, the UAW was born, and the middle class was literally born in Flint. And that led to something called the Grand Bargain, which brought in living wages and benefits and health care and housing and great education. And that action in Flint then spread throughout the nation and informed wages throughout the nation for decades. Flint was a pulsing center of manufacturing and social reform, attracting folks from all over the world who wanted a piece of the American dream. Flint in 1950 was the place to be. Flint was a promised land. Immigrants from all over the country, African Americans in the Great Migration North came to Flint for great living wage jobs, for great schools, for great infrastructure. Um, Flint at one point had the highest per capita income in the entire nation. Um, that was Flint just a few several decades ago. So how did Flint go from being synonymous with prosperity to being synonymous with crisis? We often kind of gloss over the what happened next, and that's as important because it's a history that was dark. It's a history that was also driven by man-made policy choices that led to disinvestment and unemployment. People who had the power and the privilege to leave the city left the city, and Flint became a place where things like poverty and violence became epidemic. General Motors left its birthplace, and then also coupled with racist decisions, there was things like blockbusting and redlining that further segregated the city, and then allowed the people who were predominantly white to leave the city. So there was this loss of regionalization where uh, there was white flight, and that left the city largely segregated and, and poor and pretty much abandoned. Highways were built so that the folks in the suburbs could easily zip in and zip out and no longer contribute to the core of that city. And this is not unique to, to Flint. This is in Detroit and many other cities. If this story sounds familiar, it's because you heard a similar one last episode when I was talking about Detroit's failing social infrastructure. Flint's only about 50 miles away, and the same economic, regional, and racist forces were in play in both communities. One of Michael Moore's first documentaries, Roger and Me, was about how GM had forsaken Flint. Hi, I'm Michael Moore. 
In my hometown of Flint, Michigan, General Motors closed the factories and put 30,000 people out of work. To raise their spirits, I made this movie. So what happens when a city's businesses and a city's wealthiest residents just up and leave? When Flint's population was cut in half, they lost their tax base, yet the infrastructure was built for a population twice the size with no longer the size nor the affluence to support those infrastructures. Half the population, a much smaller tax base, saddled with all of the infrastructure costs. As the poor and working people still living in Flint struggled to keep their municipal government afloat, the state of Michigan passed a series of draconian emergency manager laws robbing municipalities in financial distress of local control, basically installing an all-powerful czar who replaced all aspects of local government with one goal, cut costs and reduce debt. Not only were these laws anti-democratic, but they were applied extremely unequally. At one point in the early 2010s, the majority of black Michiganders were living under a state-appointed emergency manager. And that, of course, included the folks in Flint. The emergency managers came in in 2011, and they had really like one job, and that job was austerity. It was cut costs, cut costs, cut costs. And they looked to public employees to cut costs, for example, cutting pensions. Um, but they also looked at to public utilities. And that's where they turned their attention to our water system. And this is where the Flint water crisis, as we know it, took off, with some fateful decisions by these emergency managers. So Flint purchases water from Detroit. It's Great Lakes water. We have been purchasing this water for about half a century. And when the emergency managers came in, they decided that, hey, this, this is too expensive now for this city, this poor, predominantly minority, near-bankrupt city. And to save a buck, um, they would uh, change our water source to the Flint River. And... What happened then? So the water switch in Flint happened in April of 2014, and there was a lot of kind of noise in the media. Um, oh, you know, the water switch happened, the mayor toasted with a glass of water, and, you know, everything seemed to be fine. Here's the Flint. Flint. Here it is. There was some concerns about bacteria, but then there was boil advisories. There was all these, like, little news articles in, in local media. Um, but at the end of every article, uh, there was reassurance that everything is okay, that there's nothing to worry about, everything is in compliance. We test uh, every four hours within our plant, around the clock, continuous. That's how we were able to know that the plant is producing good, uh, good, good quality water. So I had no reason to kind of doubt any of that because, hey, there's scientists and there's rules and there's laws and there's regulations that are making sure that when I turn on my tap here in Flint or Detroit, wherever I am, my water is safe. Okay, so a city down on its luck, having hemorrhaged much of its population due to the loss of industry and white flight, needs to cut costs. Emergency managers come in and just say, water from the Flint River will do. They say, it's safe, it's fine. And the local news media, they echo that call. But every local knew that the Flint River wasn't safe to drink. It wasn't even safe to swim in. GM had been dumping wastewater in that river for decades. In the 80s, nearly every single one of GM's plants had been flagged by the EPA for their dumping practices. And either way, brown water that smells funny coming out of your tap doesn't lie. There was discolored water. Uh, people said it tasted weird, it smelled weird. Uh, we had bacteria issues. They added so much chlorine, which is a necessary disinfectant to kill that bacteria. People felt like they were drinking a cup of bleach because of all the added chlorine. So red flag after red flag, um, really almost immediately from the, the water source change. Uh, but throughout this whole period, there was reassurance and reassurance. Trust us, officials said. But something was definitely off. And here's the crucial thing. 
As Dr. Mona came to discover, when the state's emergency manager switched the city's water source from the Great Lakes water to Flint River water, they'd made a critical error. The Flint River wasn't the problem. I mean, it was part of the problem. It's not an ideal water source. But the problem with what happened in Flint is that it was missing an important ingredient called corrosion control. And to me, like a doctor, I think of it like a medicine that you put in the water treatment and it prevents whatever's in the pipes from coming out of our pipes and coming into our drinking water. To save 150 bucks a day, the emergency manager skimped on corrosion control, which is critical for the drinking supply. See, the Flint River water was more acidic than the Great Lakes water. And without corrosion control, the water started to, well, corrode the pipes, literally eat into them, leaching the contents of the metal in the pipes into the water. And those pipes, now corroding into the public drinking water, they were manufactured a long time ago, using something that used to be elemental. So do you remember the elemental symbol of lead? PB. PB comes from the Latin plumbum, which means plumbing. PB, atomic number 82, lead. So let's talk about lead for a second. It's been used for centuries to create all kinds of things, toys and toothpaste tubes and makeup and paint and yes, pipes. Here's why. Aside from the fact that it's literally poison, it's a pretty incredible metal from an engineering perspective. It's super malleable, but it doesn't rust like iron or steel. Perfect for plumbing. You know who are big fans of lead? The ancient Romans. Used it in damn near everything. They even purposely drank it. See, lead is sweet to the taste. So they used it to flavor their wine. Some historians think that this widespread use of lead had some pretty important historical consequences for Rome. There's actually strong theories that the demise of the Romans is because they used so much lead in their plumbing. It's pretty wild, but lead has been found in the bones of skeletons from that time. But while the Romans back in the day didn't know it was dangerous, here in the U.S., we got wise to its dangers as soon as the early 1900s. In a bitter historical twist of irony, the movement to ban lead from all products in the U.S. ran right through the heart of Flint, through GM. Throughout much of the 20th century, lead was widely used in gasoline to keep engines from knocking. It's not used anymore. That's why we even say unleaded gasoline. In part because of the early advocacy and leadership of another passionate female physician, not unlike Dr. Mona. Even back then in the 1920s, we knew that lead was a poison. And my favorite hero of all time is a woman named Alice Hamilton. She was a physician. She was a badass. She was a social justice visionary. And in the 1920s, she was our nation's expert on lead poisoning. So she went after General Motors with all her might in, in the 1920s, and it's reported that in a meeting with the Surgeon General, she confronted Charles Kettering in the hallway and called him out. That's Charles Kettering, then head of research for General Motors. And she said, you're nothing but a murderer. So there's a long history of the well-known consequences of lead and water issues, um, but also a long history of our lack of any political will to do anything about it. Like the oil industry is today, or Big Pharma, or Wall Street, the lead industry was super powerful back in the day. They lobbied the government to keep their interests protected, which is why lead was widely used in all kinds of products, and why it took a long time to take the industry down. But eventually we did. After efforts by many other scientists and activists, we got lead out of almost everything. Gasoline and paint and even plumbing, but not nearly as fast as we should have. Lead and plumbing was allowed in our service lines until 1986, and those are the lines that go from a water main to the front of your house. But get this, lead and plumbing was allowed in brass fixtures and faucets until 2014. Wow. Nothing in Flint has been built after 2014. 
An outdated system of managing a poisonous substance meets an aging infrastructure in a city without the means of fixing it. State autocrats change their water supply and leave out the corrosion control to save a few bucks. That's Flint. One GM factory stopped using water from the Flint River as early as the summer of 2014, way before the crisis broke. That's after they found that the Flint River water was rusting their engine blocks. Because they were at the edge of Flint city limits, they just hooked up to the neighboring community's water supply. That's something most Flint residents wish they could do. If the water was rusting engine blocks, imagine what it was doing to the insides of people's bodies in Flint. And the folks at the EPA said it was almost like we were drinking through a lead-painted straw. <laughs> and you never knew when a piece of the lead scale was going to come off those pipes and into the drinking water and into the bodies of our children. After the break, Dr. Mona discovers what's going on, confronts a government trying to cover it up, and forces the world to pay attention. Lead is well known to be a silent pediatric epidemic. I love to kind of trick my medical students and my trainees. I'm like, how does a kid with lead poisoning present? And they'll be like, oh, they have headaches and stomach aches and they're doing bad in school um, or they have like whatever issues. And the answer is no. Um, children with lead poisoning present with nothing. Uh, it's asymptomatic. We don't see the consequences of lead exposure for years, if not decades down the road. Before we go deeper into how much of a badass Dr. Mona is, I want to talk a bit more about lead, because in order to understand why this crisis is so devastating, you really need to understand what lead does to the human body. As I explain this, I need you to appreciate something. Lead is one sneaky bastard. See, lead is what we call a divalent ionic metal. There are tons of really healthful divalent metals. They're the usual suspects on the back of your vitamin bottle. Calcium for your bones, magnesium for your brain and muscles, and iron for your blood. Lead is not one of those metals. But to the body, it does look an awful lot like one. And once it's inside the body, it disguises itself as one. It flows through the body, going to the parts those metals go, and then pretending to be them, replacing the other metals in the cells that use them most. But where those other ionic metals are necessary for our cells to function, lead poisons them. And it does this in some of the body's most important tissues. The heart, the kidneys, the blood, the skin, and most importantly, the brain. And that's where lead is most dangerous for our kids. Most of the time, the brain's protected from contaminants by a special barrier called the blood-brain barrier. But lead, that sneaky bastard, it passes through, disguised as calcium. There, it wreaks havoc, programming cells to automatically self-destruct. This is really bad for everybody, but it's particularly bad for kids, whose brains are still growing and developing. You can imagine what happens when, instead of building and making connections, brain cells are going into automatic self-destruct mode. Kids who are exposed to lead will bear the consequences their whole lives, with substantial IQ reductions. And oh, once lead's inside the body, it doesn't just leave. No, it sticks around. Disguised as calcium, it settles into the bones and hangs out there, leaching out slowly over time, continuing to poison. Because lead damages the body slowly, it's hard to detect. Real sneaky. And that's why it's often hard to recognize large-scale poisoning until some years down the line, when it's already too late. Okay, so back to 2015. 18 months since the state changed Flint's water source from the Great Lakes to the Flint River, authorities are still saying the water's fine. Don't worry. But the people know something's off. So a group of citizen activists reach out to researchers at Virginia Tech who've exposed other massive municipal lead crises. 
like the one in Washington, D.C. in the early 2000s. They begin conducting research in Flint homes. Incredible scientists from Virginia Tech University were working hand-in-hand with the citizens of Flint using citizen science, where they were sampling, you know, water throughout the city in every ward and finding lead in the water throughout the city. And that's when Dr. Mona started to put two and two together. Once I heard about the possibility of lead being in the water, every patient was treated differently. And then there was also this um, possibility that everything that I was seeing in my patients could be attributed to the water. Like, was that kid's ADHD that I just diagnosed could it have been related to the water? Or was this kid's skin rash related to the water? Or should I stop telling that mom to you know drink water instead of pop? So everything that I was doing in my daily practice became altered after I, I heard about the possibility of lead in the water. Just imagine this for a minute, being a pediatrician and realizing that all this time to get them to avoid soda and juice, you've been telling your patient's parents to have them drink more water and now having to rethink what that might have meant. Imagine knowing that every time those parents gave their kids a bath or mixed their formula with water or rinsed off their cut or scrape, they could be poisoning them. As a clinician, seeing patients one by one, Dr. Mona wasn't going to be able to solve this. She needed to figure out how to prevent the lead poisoning in the first place. She needed to answer the question that was now on everyone's mind. Was the state of Michigan's decision to change the water source causing lead poisoning in Flint? Yeah, so I knew I knew that I would need science. I knew that I would need data and evidence um, to make a dent in the story. Um, through kind of my past experience and career, I knew that whenever I had data in my pocket, it, you know, it was easier to make an argument and present a case. Dr. Mona is also an epidemiologist, trained to interpret and perform large-scale studies to identify what makes us sick. Think back to Jon Snow, who I introduced you to at the beginning of the series. He used maps and early statistics to ask if there was something in the water that was causing cholera. Dr. Mona was now using the same set of tools, albeit far more advanced, to ask if there was something in the water causing lead poisoning. But she needed the right data. I knew that all blood lead levels uh, that we do in our state are part of surveillance programs. We have them for things like the flu and other kind of, you know, big issues. I tried to get the data, the blood lead level, from those surveillance programs, both at the county and at the state health department level. I was unsuccessful. Uh, so then I was stopped. Why were you unsuccessful? Because they didn't want to share that information. Mm-hmm. Uh, the county health department actually said they could give me like one PDF of one child at a time. So I was I was stuck. I, I wanted to get this information. So then I realized that um, my hospital here, uh, the Hurley Children's Hospital, is kind of the only shop in town. And not only do we process labs for my clinic, which does see the most fun kids, uh, it actually processes labs for most of the the clinics around our hospital. Uh, So we went through the proper approvals and was able to retrieve all the lead levels of children. Uh, And we compared lead levels before the water switch to lead levels after the water switch. By now, you already know what she found. After the water switch, the percentage of children with lead levels five micrograms or greater within the water limits had doubled. Uh, There was no change outside of the city water limits. And in areas where the water lead levels were the highest, we also saw the greatest increases in children's uh, blood lead levels. It was heartbreaking and it was saddening and it made me mad. Um, That was a moment that I literally wanted to scream from the top of the hospital's roof. Like I wanted to stand up there with a megaphone and say, this is a big problem. Yeah, big effing problem. The findings were conclusive. Dr. Mona had to get this information out to the world, but there was an issue. The peer review process, age-old process, really important that your peers check your work. How long does that process take? 
months, if not years. <laughs> months, if not years. Um, but, but our Flint kids literally didn't have another day. As we discussed, science is a process. But that process can be slow, requiring the back and forth of peer review. Her findings did eventually get published in the American Journal of Public Health, a full eight months after they were performed. Flint kids didn't have that kind of time, so she went right to the press herself. I literally walked out of my clinic with a white coat on, and I stood up at a press conference, which is not what doctors and scientists do. This research is concerning. These results are concerning. And when our national guiding organizations tell us primary prevention is the most important thing and that lead poisoning is potentially irreversible, um, then we have to say something. Yeah, Dr. Mona's a badass. She put her academic reputation on the line to ring the alarm bells. She went out of her way to put Flint kids above herself. Now, you'd hope a doctor putting that much on the line to ring the alarm would have politicians beside themselves, that they'd be spurred to action by the truth of this science and the integrity of this doctor. Nope. Anybody who had said anything of concern was was attacked. So I was sort of prepared for that, but nothing can prepare you for when the state and almost every arm of the state comes out and tells you you're wrong, that your science is wrong, that you are splicing and dicing numbers, uh, that you're an unfortunate researcher, that you're causing near hysteria, and that their numbers, and remember they had the numbers, they had those surveillance numbers, and they said their numbers were not consistent with my numbers. So I felt defeated. I felt small. I felt scared. The scientific process moved a lot slower than the moment demanded. But government, the other half of this public health equation, They moved quite quickly, but instead of doing anything about it, they tried to deny they did anything wrong. It was not EPA at the helm when this happened. But looking back on Flint from day one, the state provided our regional office with confusing, incomplete, and absolutely incorrect information. That plan was already in place when I got there. In fact, it was a a local decision. The fact is, bureaucrats created a culture that valued technical competence over common sense. No one at the state, no one at the emergency manager's office, no one at the county, no one at the city wanted to admit that government had poisoned kids. They denied any problem even existed, even though Dr. Mona knew the state had this data. Though in the footsteps of many a strong woman, nevertheless, Dr. Mona persisted. I realized that they can go after me all they want, that this had nothing to do with me, but, but everything to do with my kids, my, my children, who as a pediatrician, like I have literally taken an oath to protect. Uh, so I quickly kind of recouped um, and we fought back with more numbers, more science, more evidence. Growing team uh, was at my side. Uh, media, journalists from all over started to pay attention. And that opened the avalanche of coverage that would come to dominate the headlines for months. Thousands of Flint children may now face a lifetime of impairment from drinking lead-contaminated water. This morning, the city of Flint, Michigan, is in a state of emergency. President Obama will sit down this afternoon with the mayor of Flint, Michigan. And that's why I'm here, to tell you directly that I see you and I hear you. You know all about that version of the story, because you saw it. It was hard to miss. The spotlight shined brightly on Flint, and though it brought action, it still wasn't as much as Flint needed. The state began providing bottled water, and they switched the water source back to the Great Lakes. The state also passed a few aid packages, and so did the federal government. But with the pipes already leaching lead into the water, throwing money at the problem and switching the water back wasn't enough. The corroded leaded pipes were still in the ground. Even today, in the fall of 2019, Flint still has lead piping. 
And what about the bigger issue? What about providing every single person in Flint who is poisoned the healthcare support, the financial support, the educational support they need to heal? We're still far, far away from that. The recovery from the Flint water crisis deserves its own 10-episode podcast series. But I want to step back. Because in shining the spotlight exclusively on Flint, we've missed something bigger. The story of Flint is not an isolated story. You know, it's really about kids all over this nation who wake up to the very same nightmares. Uh, Black, brown, white, rural, urban, all over, kids are waking up to the same situations where their zip codes literally are the greatest predictors of their trajectories. The story of Flint sounds a lot like the story of Detroit, because it is that story. It's the story of low-income, predominantly black and brown communities throughout this country whose children are poisoned by lead. It's a story we could tell in so many American cities. And now, it's a story we're telling in Newark, New Jersey, which, in the fall of 2019, is dealing with its own lead and water issues. We end today's show with the water crisis in Newark, New Jersey, where thousands of residents remain unable to drink their tap water in an enduring public health nightmare. See, Flint and Newark are the tip of the iceberg. We see them because what happened was egregious enough to rise above the surface. But often, with icebergs, the deadliest part is the part you can't see, sitting below the surface. In Detroit, there are zip codes that have three times the prevalence of lead poisoning than Flint did, even at the height of the crisis. And that's the story in too many other major cities, too. Who suffers? Kids who are disproportionately black and brown. That lead is rarely ingested through the water. Instead, it's usually leaded paint that chips off of the walls of old homes, there from the time before it was banned. But either way... The victims are marginalized people in segregated communities whose children are being poisoned by a substance we've known as dangerous for over a century. Kids in Flint already had higher lead levels, just like kids in Detroit and Chicago and Baltimore and Philly and all these places where our children are already struggling with every kind of toxicity of life. It persists. It is nestled in our soil under layers of paint uh, and delivering our drinking water throughout this country. So we continue to live with the lingering legacy of lead and really with the industry and profit-driven corporations that, that put it into all this. Preventing disease isn't just about having the knowledge that something is dangerous. It's about having the means and the will to prevent it. That requires a government you can trust to protect you, a government you can trust to work in your best interest. In short, a government that works like it's supposed to, like we consented to in the first place. See, the rich and powerful in society, they can usually provide themselves the means of prevention. Their wealth and privilege protects them. But for poor folks, for marginalized folks, Their health is so much more a consequence of government decisions. And when government fails, whether in an instant like in Flint or over decades like in Detroit, these folks suffer. That bears out in lead, but it also bears out in asthma and diabetes and heart disease. And it bears out among the old and the very young, whom we'll discuss more next episode. And these effects compound over the course of a life. If the lead doesn't get you, the asthma might. And if you dodge both of them, watch out for the diabetes. Worse, The consequences of government failure reverberate. Long after solutions are proposed and debated and even implemented, the fundamental trust that died with that initial failure, it doesn't just come back to life. I think 
part of the reason we got into this water crisis um, was because of longstanding attacks on government, that big government is bad, that, you know, these austerity-driven policies that had stripped a lot of our bureaucracies over decades of their institutional memory, of their expertise, of funding, uh, which is arguably one of the reasons that we got into this crisis. I'm not saying we need big government, but we need smart government and we need transparent government and we need government that is representative of the people. Um, And I think that's one of the greatest lessons of this crisis. In Flint, the consequences persist today. Government officials love to tell Flint residents that Flint water has tested within normal limits for years now. But there is no normal amount of lead in water. And those lead pipes are still in the ground. And the government said all this before. So Flint residents, well, let me leave it to them. You trust the water? As much as I trust everything else about the government. No, I still don't. And what, what do you do for water? Do you drink the water from the tap? We or? have to buy it from the store. What? Do you trust the water? Do I? Yeah. <laughs> Just as much as I trust Governor Snyder. Yeah. And I don't. Why would I? I can't even trust him with my life. Do you want the sugar? You know, I know I don't. I don't trust the water. I don't, not at all. I don't even give it to my dogs. I don't even water my plants with this mm. water. Mm. I use bottled water to water my outside plants. Public health? It's all about trust in science, in government. And that trust in Flint is long gone. But there are good people fighting the good fight. They're working to heal kids in places like Flint and in Newark and Detroit and Pittsburgh and D.C. and Chicago. They're building institutions to provide kids healthy fruits and veggies that can mitigate the harmful effects of lead in the body. They're building comprehensive early childhood education centers to combat the effects of lead on the brain. And they're building awareness to make sure that things like this don't happen again. But for now, if you'd like to support Flint Kids, check out Dr. Mona's project. Go to flintkids.org. Next time on America Dissected, what does it mean that life expectancy has dropped for the third straight year in a row in the U.S.? We'll dissect life expectancy in America and reveal what it means for the elderly, and more importantly, for the very young. As an epidemiologist, I know a thing or two about virality. So if you like our show, make sure to share, subscribe, and rate us on iTunes. And tweet or Instagram me at at Abdul El Sayed, and I'll throw you a repost. America Dissected is a production of Crooked Media. Our producers are Austin Fisher, Carrie Jr. II, and Katie Long. Andrea B. Scott is our story editor. Our sound designer is Daniel Ramirez. Production support from Allison Falzetta, Elisa Gutierrez, Kara Hart, Daniel Porcerelli, and Tara Terpstra. Fact-checking by Dr. Nicole Aiello. The theme song is by Taka Yasuzawa and Alex Huguiera. Our executive producers are Sarah Geismer and Mukta Mohan. Special thanks to John Favreau, John Lovett, Tanya Sominator, and Tommy Vitor. And I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. Thanks for listening. <laughs>